and amen. It's been good to be here tonight. Hey, can I ask you a question real quick? Can I ask you a question? Yes or no? Can I ask you a question? Okay. Here it is. Now, this is a deep one, so I, I'm going to need you to... <laughs> I thought it was funny to put on your put on your thinking cap. What I don't what is a thinking cap? I don't not really sure, but you look like you've got a thinking cap on. So here's the question. Are you ready? If you try to fail and you succeed at that, which did you really do? Have you thought about that? If you're trying to fail and you succeed, did you Succeed or did you fail? I don't know. Here, here's another one. Here's another one because the audience seems divided on this. So if life, here, here it is. If life is unfair to everyone, doesn't that make life fair? Everybody's always saying, our parents are always going, life's not fair. But everybody's parents have said that. So listen, if life isn't fair for everyone, then that means that life really is fair. Have you ever thought about that? Hold on. Here's another one. Check this out. Does the rule, every rule has an exception, have an exception? These are the deep questions of life. Aren't you glad you came to camp tonight? I mean, here we go. Now, this is the one that's been puzzling me for quite some time, and this might possibly be a game changer. After I ask you this question, um, we might just pray and go home. Are you ready? If dentists make their money from unhealthy teeth, why in the world would I trust a product that four out of five dentists recommend? That doesn't make any sense, y'all. Have you thought about that? It's like... They've been advertising bubblegum-flavored, sugar-packed Crest toothpaste because it's driving business. Have you ever thought about that? I think the only toothpaste that really works is the nasty kind. It's like the Arm & Hammer or something like that. No dentist recommends it. (laughs) No, this is my favorite, though. This is what I've been thinking about lately. Wouldn't it be ironic to die in the living room? (laughs) Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine if, like... You know, Uncle Tom died in the living room, and all of a sudden it's not the living room anymore, it's the dying room. It's like, not the dining room, the dying room. This is where Uncle Tom died, right here. It's like, let me tell you, these are funny, but, but here's what these are. These types of questions kind of illustrate a word, kind of. It's called a paradox. Have you ever heard of a paradox before? Now, typically if I ask a question like this, there's like 70 people shouting at me at the same time. So don't do that. Let me just ask, is there, is there one smart person, just one person who would wager their, their best guess at what is the definition of a paradox? Shout it out, one of you. What you got? Paradox. Define it. We're, we're all leaning in to hear you right now. So... It's so confusing, he's even struggling to tell me. It's like... Yeah. He's, he's even giving me a paradox. Like, here, somewhat paradox. A truth expressed... That was beautiful. That was... 
Now, he explained it. He defined it. It's a, it's a pair. I asked Riley if he would just help us make this simple and just help put a definition of a, here's a paradox right here. Um, I'm going to let it sink in. <laughs> Little paradox for you back there. It's a pair of them. You got it? Everybody say dad joke. <laughs> yeah. No, let, let me tell you what a paradox is. A paradox is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. It's something that when you say it on surface level, you're like, that does not make sense. It doesn't go together. It doesn't equate. But when you begin to study it and explain it, you find out that though it sounds absurd on the surface level, down deep, it makes perfect sense. Now, there are two types of paradox. Let me just explain this real quick. Two different types. There is a logical paradox, and then there's a rhetorical paradox. Now, a logical paradox is when two things are presented that are completely contradictory and cannot be the same. True cannot equal false, no matter what somebody tells you. Blue does not equal green. Um, it's, a, it's a logical paradox. And when you look at it, no matter how much you study it, no matter how far deep into the logical recesses of the argument you trace it, not, not the same. Logical paradox. But the rhetorical paradox, that's the one that we're most familiar with. That's the one that's used a lot in literature. That's the one of which those dinosaur jokes are made. This is a rhetorical paradox. It's like it seems to be absurd on the surface level, but when you really kind of dive into it and you study it, you find out, wow, this is 100% true. Now, I want to go on record tonight as saying, as you start to study the Bible, you will discover, and you'll note, let me just tell you, you will never find a logical paradox in the Bible. Never one time will you find the Bible contradicting itself. Here's why. Because God wrote a book. And if one author wrote the whole thing and his name is God and he's perfect and he can't lie and he knows everything, then he will not contradict his own self. Amen? Now, through all the 66 books, through the dozens of authors that the Holy Spirit spoke to and through, never one time in all of the pages of God's Word will you find a logical paradox. You won't, it won't happen. But right now, there are people in our culture who are pulling scriptures out of their context and out of their cultural context and out of their literary context, and they're trying to deceive you into thinking that the Bible argues against itself, and I'm here to tell you that is not the case. No logical paradoxes but there are there are often in scripture these rhetorical paradox the things that might seem on surface level to be absurd and contradictory but when you study them you find out wow that is completely true and Jesus is the master of the rhetorical paradox let me give you a few of them in in scripture like if you study the Bible, you find out quickly that the only way to know victory is to surrender. 
And on surface level, you go, victory, that doesn't equal surrender. It's two totally opposing terms until you discover that as you surrender to Jesus, you find victory in him. So in normal, everyday, regular terms, victory does not equal surrender. But when it comes to Jesus, victory is always found in surrender. Let me give you another one. In John chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus says that the best way to live is to die. What? Living or dying? Which one is it, Jesus? He'd say, both. Wait, so am I living or am I dying? Yes. It's both. Here's one. James chapter 4, verse 10. We studied it this morning. The way up is down. What? That doesn't make any sense. Humble yourself and he will exalt you. Rhetorical paradox. Here's another one. 2 Corinthians 12.10. When you're weak, you're strong. Hold up. Because I'm... (laughs) Am I... Wait, are you weak or are you strong? Which one? Which... Are you weak or are you strong? Because you can't... You can't be... You can't... And and, and Paul says, no, it is both. Because when you recognize your weakness, it's there that the Holy Spirit fills you with his strength. It's a rhetorical paradox. Here's another one. Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. The only way to find life is to lose it. Well, am I finding or am I losing? Yes. Now, we could spend hours diving into a sermon in each one of those paradox, and I know that Maybe these are head scratchers the way that I'm quickly explaining them to you. But let, let, me give you, let me give you one of them a little bit more in depth. Where a lot of people use these two scriptures to say that Jesus is contradicting himself. In Matthew chapter 5 verse 16, the Bible says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. But then in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, not many verses later, he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. And people like to pull those verses out of context and say, see, even Jesus can't agree with himself. He's saying, don't do anything before others and then do it before others. Which one is it? Here's the answer. It's both. It's both. It's not a contradiction. It's a rhetorical paradox of sorts. It's Jesus communicating a deeper truth than what's found on the surface level. It has everything to do with the intent of a person's heart. See, when we live for Jesus in a humble and in an authentic and organic way, our light will shine before others, Matthew 5, 16. As you're going about your everyday life, you're doing things to the glory of God, you're, you're You're shining the light of Jesus everywhere that you go. But Jesus says later, here's the thing. If you're trying to put on a show, if you're trying to manufacture these religious moments in order to show people on purpose how awesome you are and bring their attention to how godly you are, Jesus says God is not with you in that. Does it make sense? Paradox. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 4, where we're studying this week, these beatitudes of Jesus are building upon one another. And this morning, we saw, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in verse number 4, I think this might be one of the most stark contrasts 
in all of the Bible, Jesus says this. Blessed, happy, are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we have to pause and say, what? At the surface level, we could boil this down into even a fewer words. We could say, Jesus is saying here, happy are the sad. Wait, so are they happy or are they sad? And to that, Jesus would say, yes. So tonight, I want us to pray together and ask God to help us understand exactly what this means for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for allowing us to be here tonight, and we thank you for your word and its deep truths. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who's moving in this place and in our hearts. Lord, we know the enemy is fighting hard against what you want to do tonight, so God, I pray that you, Lord, help us not to get up out of our seat for any reason. Help us not to speak to our neighbor for any reason. Lord, tonight, let us zero in on what your word is saying to us and let us just hear from you and be focused on you and give all of our energy and attention tonight to you. Lord, some in the room tonight are, Lord, they're sad. And some are pretending to be happy and we're wondering, how can we be restored to the life that you intended for us. And tonight, would you show us that? We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Now, I want to tell you a story real quick about my former friend. His name is Eddie. (laughs) In fact, I've got a picture of Eddie, and when you look at him, he just looks like an Eddie, doesn't he? Just... Eddie's not a Facebook user, really, so he's never going to know about us talking about him tonight and... Let me just tell you about why we became former friends. Um, Eddie is annoying. Eddie got on my ever-loving last nerve, and the nerve of every staff member that served with us those six summers at a particular camp in Kentucky. And because he got on our nerves so stinking much, we decided to tamper with his pride and joy. Now, Eddie served with us at camp, and um, Eddie had a big problem. Eddie knew everything, (laughs) but yet he didn't. Paradox, (laughs) logical one there. Eddie really believed that he knew everything, and so it was often, it was daily, maybe hourly, that he would open his mouth and spew information with such a matter-of-fact tone, but he was talking about things that he had no idea what he was talking about. Does anybody have maybe a sibling or you know someone at school, raise a hand, don't elbow them if they're next to you, just raise your hand. Like, there's that guy or that girl that they're, they're never, <laughs> they're not often right, but they're never in doubt. You know what I'm saying? They, they're getting stuff wrong all the time, but they're saying it like they know everything, and Eddie was that guy. I mean, it didn't matter what we were doing. Eddie had a better way to be doing it. It didn't matter what I instructed the team to do. Eddie had a thought on the instruction that I was giving the team. And so 
Um, if you said, Eddie, I want you to go right, Eddie was going left. If you said, Eddie, the sky is blue, he would give you the definition of blue in his opinion and tell you about why you were wrong. And <laughs> here's the thing, we just couldn't take it anymore. Eddie had saved his money, he had scrimped and saved to purchase, <laughs> of, all, of all things, a, a, a brand new Jeep Grand Cherokee. And this, yeah, we were all like, okay, you bought a, you didn't even buy a cool Jeep, you bought a Grand Cherokee, right? But okay, but, but Eddie was constantly telling us about why this car, the Jeep Grand Cherokee, is the single most amazing car that has ever been manufactured. It's actually God's favorite car, and you're dumb for having purchased any other car beside a Jeep Grand Cherokee. He was telling us about the fuel economy of that joker. I mean, he was telling us about how we were all going to be wasting God's money by spending it on repairs for our cars when we could have bought a Jeep Grand Cherokee because they never have problems ever, according to Eddie. And so as Eddie just continued to talk and talk and talk, we're like, Eddie, you don't know jack about cars, especially the Jeep Grand Cherokee. But he just, man, you know what I'm saying? He's just getting on our nerves. And so... What we decided to do was one night with the help of one of my staffers named Robert, we, we rewired some things. In particular, uh, Robert discovered how to wire Eddie's brake pedal to his horn. Yeah, it was awesome. And so... After Robert gave me the thumbs up on that night, I was giving out the evening assignments, and I said, tonight, tonight, I'm giving Eddie his favorite job. He is going to be the night, well, he's going to be the night watchman. <laughs> now, let me, just, let me just set the scene. The service is over. Everybody's gone back to their cabins. We're sitting in this this camp sits in the bowl between all of these mountains that surround it. And so it was so cool because the, the tabernacle was open air. And if you were preaching there, it was so cool because if you made a point, it would echo in the mountains. Like if you were standing in the softball field, you could say something and the people like 50 acres away could hear it because the acoustics were just amazing. So the lights have gone out. The, 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 the crickets are filling the nighttime sky with their sound, and it's peaceful and wonderful. The youth pastors are snoring. <laughs> Even the middle school boys have ceased from their giggling and fartings. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's that beautiful time of the night when every camp staffer just says, and then Eddie starts his Jeep and at exactly 12.45 a.m. all of Stab County, Kentucky was filled with the sound of Eddie trying to figure out what had gone wrong with his Jeep Grand Cherokee yeah, it was amazing. And he came in and he's like, guys, what happened? And we're like, we don't know. And you're all sworn to secrecy on this day because we've never told him it was us, okay? Um, 
<laughs> and the, every mile of Eddie's journey out of the holler into the town of Somerset the next day, every time he took a turn or came to a light, he was reminded of the fact that this pedal was not wired for this. This pedal was wired to stop the vehicle, not to speak for the vehicle. Something has gone very wrong. You, you know what Eddie's car really needed more than anything at that point? What well, needed a restoration. It needed a restoration. When the manufacturers at Jeep put that wiring harness together, they never intended that wire to perform that function, but... It was going to take going to a mechanic to get all the wiring back to its original intent. Now, when God created mankind in the Garden of Eden, he created perfection. Adam and Eve were without sin, and therefore they were without shame. They loved God, but the thing about love is love requires a choice. If you force someone to love you, that's not true love, true or false. If you force somebody to love you, that's not real love. That's abuse. That's manipulation. So we want the same thing as God wants because we're created in his image. We want people to choose to love us. And so because that's real love. And in the Garden of Eden, God created humanity and he wired them in such a way to make logical, independent, free will choices. It's one of the very first principles at play. God says, here are all the trees of the garden from which you can eat, but there's one rule. Don't eat from this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, God knows everything, so he knows exactly what Adam and Eve are eventually going to choose to do. That's God's sovereignty. But God doesn't force them to love him. Every day, Adam and Eve get to wake up in the garden of perfection and make a decision. Will we choose to love God today and obey his one rule? Or will we choose to not love God today and disobey his one rule? And so the question is, is God sovereign or does man have a free will? And the answer is, yes, it's both. It's a rhetorical paradox. I'm sure you know how it went. Satan tempts them. They make an unloving, free will choice to disobey God's one rule. And as a result, you and I were born sinners. Now, I've preached that we're born sinners before. But just two weeks ago, when my precious baby daughter came into the world, I became keenly aware of just what it means to be born a sinner. Let me tell you that she can be completely fed. She can be in a comfortable bed. Not too hot, not too cold, totally rested, and be screaming for no reason. You know why? She's a liar. <laughs> yeah, she's beautiful, but she is a pretty little liar. And so she is freaking out for no reason. Why? You know why? You know why? She was born a sinner. You and I, no one had to teach you how to lie. You figured that out on your own. Nobody sat you down and said, hey, if you want to cheat, this is what cheating means. No, that came naturally to you. No one had to instruct you in this is how you dishonor and disobey your parents. As a little one, two, three, and four-year-old, you perfected that skill that you've been practicing up until the day before you left for camp. No one had to teach you that. 
But God did not create mankind. God didn't wire mankind originally to live like that. Our wiring has has gone wrong. Sin has taken what was intended to stop us and now it's speaking for us. And so the next phase in our restoration process, we saw night number one, we're going to need to leave our vehicle in the hands of the mechanic. Next, we saw that he's going to have to gut the interior. And now, he's going to do some rewiring in the restoration process. Out with the short-circuited, sinful, old wiring, in with the Holy Spirit-operated new wiring, what we need more than anything, what you need... Let me tell you why you're not happy. You you need God to restore you to his original intent for how you ought to think. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4, look at it. Happy, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, these days we've been wired to seek for comfort in pleasure, in thrill, in entertainment, and physical indulgence. And the energy and the high that we get from these temporal and often sinful things leaves us feeling what we think is happy. But the feeling is soon fleeting and coming with its dissipation is a hunger for more and for more and for more. We're never satisfied with one sin. We're never filled with one sin. We're always searching, but that's not how Jesus describes true blessing and true happiness. It's like we go to that one thing looking for happiness, and we get this This high that we would describe as happy, but it goes away so quick. And so we go into something that's deeper, then into something that's darker. And before we know it, what started as an innocent little something now has got us wrapped up in the chains of being addicted to that thing. And we're going, when am I going to be satisfied? And Jesus says, never in that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Makarios, blessed, it's happy. Well, what is happiness? What is it? It can be hard to define, but, but you know it when you experience it. And Christians have a habit of elevating joy and downplaying happiness. And I, I want to be honest with you, that's not biblical. But I certainly have preached that before. It's, it, it sounds really cool. It's in one of the sermons that I will never preach again. Happiness is based upon your happenings, but joy is found in Jesus. It's alliterated. It's tweetable. It sounds cool. But as I've been studying for camp this week, I found out not Bible. Hey, can I just, can I just tell you that just because something sounds tweetable doesn't mean that it's true? Can I just tell you that just because you saw it on an Instagram graphic by a a preacher at some church doesn't mean that it's Bible? Can I just tell you that if it doesn't come from the word of God, it's not true. Jesus said, thy word, God's word is truth. If it doesn't line up with God's word, it's not true. Look up here. And so we've elevated joy, and, 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 and youth pastors, youth leaders, we've got to get away from these sermons that we've all preached of, well, if you want, if you want to live a, you know, a pure life, you know, then you, you can do that here, but if you just want to be happy, if you're just looking for happiness, then, then that's out there, but, but, but we've got joy here, but happiness is out there. You know, Jesus doesn't use the word for joy in Matthew chapter 5. 
It's a different word. Jesus continually, nine times, uses the word happy. The word happy. In the Old Testament, happy comes from the Hebrew word asher. You find it in Psalm 1.1. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Well, well, why does the Bible say makarios here? Why does it say blessed in English rather than, why why doesn't it say happy then? Well, similar to many words that we would use today, that if I were to call back somebody um, from the 1600s and put them on this stage and I were to say, oh man, that looks really cool, he would go, cold? It's not? Or, or if, if somebody from the 1600s was overhearing us talking and I said, man, that shirt looks sharp, they would go, well, don't let them cut themselves. You know, it's sharp. Words that we've taken and we have redefined that we all readily understand somebody from a different era wouldn't get. And in the 15 and 1600s when the Bible was being translated in the King James Version, the word blessed was readily and culturally understood to mean happy. Now, we know that blessed and happy have two different meanings in our culture today. And so this is where some of us are going, hold up, Pastor John, here's the thing. The Bible can be a lot. So how can I find those things out? Like, do I have to go to some seminary and study Greek and Hebrew in order to know what the Bible's really saying? No. It'd be awesome if you did, but can I give you... this? Let me just throw this in there. Can I, can I just give you a resource that you could use? If you really want to study deep into something, can I give you a free resource you could use? Just go to blueletterbible.com. Blueletterbible.com. Write that down. You're, you're going to love it. And there's a button there at the top that says Strong's. It's a concordance. And when you click it, all of a sudden these blue letters show up by every word in the Bible. And when you click the blue letters, it tells you what's the root word and what's the definition and where else is that word found in Scripture. There's links to some really good commentaries and some really okay commentaries. But it's, it's all there and it's free. And there are probably a dozen resources your youth pastors could tell you about. But this is one. This is one. That's free and it's easy to use and I even referenced it in preparing these messages for you this week And when we look at this word blessed, it's the word makarios in the old testament. It's asher. It just means it means happy What is happiness? What is happiness because i've heard that happy was of the world but joy was of jesus Well, let me just tell you simply this happy Is a deep-seated peace and contentment Sometimes happiness is an erupting delight. And happiness, I mean true happiness, is so wonderful that it should only ever be attributed to to God. Let me tell you why. Let me give you three quick biblical truths about happiness. First of all, God is by nature happy. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 1.11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the, see that word? Blessed Makarios, the happy God with which I have been entrusted. I want you to know that though you might have seen some movies or maybe heard a sermon or two where God is this angry up in heaven, lightning bolt in hand, ready to strike mankind down and judge you. And if you got the sniffles, it's because God's getting you for that lie that he knew you told. That's not God. God is 
by nature, God is by nature happy. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. So to be happy is to be like God. God says that he is love. God is love. So when we are loving, we are being like God. God is holy. He says, be holy for I am holy. When we are living a life of holiness, we're living a life like God. And God's restoration process in our life means that he's making us like him as was his original intent in the Garden of Eden, God designed mankind to be filled with his happiness. Number two, true happiness can only be found in true godliness. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 25 is speaking there in the hall of faith about these people who served God with their lives. And it says they chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. The Bible says that we're only happy when we're being godly. And when we're being godly, we will know Christ's happiness. And some people are going, see, that's where the Bible's wrong. Because sin makes me happy. No. Sin destines you to ultimately become unhappy. It's a temporary hit, but it's not true, lasting happiness. And some people will use this verse to preach that sin will make you happy for a season, but the Bible never says that sin will make you happy. The Bible does say that sin has with it a temporary pleasure. And pleasure and happiness are not the same. It's not the same. So... Sin destines us to become unhappy. Let me just tell you, when you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. The truly happy person is the person who's in love with God, finding pleasure in God and delighting in God. And let me just tell you that holiness is not in competition with happiness. It's not like, a oh, if you're following God, you'll be holy. And if you're just looking to be happy, you can go. I'm here to tell you that the truly happy are living a life that is holy. And people that are living a life that is truly holy unto God will be truly happy because Christ fills them, not with a temporary hit of pleasure. Let me just tell you, sometimes following Christ is unpleasurable, but God gives to us his happiness. Well, well, wait a second. So is our happiness then dependent upon our happenings? Is it circumstantial? Well, in a word, no. No, happiness can be affected by our circumstances, but happiness, true happiness, is not founded upon our situation. Godly people are happy because they're focused on God and they're content in who God is. Hebrews does suggest that sin is, it's got a pleasure element with it, but that, that seasonal fleeting pleasure It doesn't even compare to what it means to be truly happy in Jesus. Let me just tell you that the pleasure of sin is like putting a quarter in one of those rides in the mall, one of those little cars that just kind of rocks you back and forth. Kids love it because it feels like they're going somewhere and they're doing something for a moment, but it doesn't actually take you anywhere except further in debt because you have to keep putting more quarters in it and more quarters in it and more quarters in it to feel something, but there's no future in that. 
You waste all this time and money to realize that it didn't actually take you anywhere. Now, let me just tell you, I'm not promising you this prosperity gospel. Like, God does not promise your wealth. God does not promise your health. But God does promise you happiness, even in sorrow. You can attempt to pursue happiness without God, but you'll fail. But in order to know true happiness, you have to pursue God. Happiness cannot be possessed without God. Here's another one. Happiness is a bridge to the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, the writer says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings the good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Happiness is a bridge to the gospel. In other words, when the world looks at you, what do they see? I'm here to tell you that I'm really more interested in hearing about the life of someone who's got a smile on their face than a person who's got a major scowl all day. Like, as a pastor, I don't mind. I have a calling, we all do, to go to those people who are sorrowful and just down and, and, and to expose them to the happiness that Jesus provides. But, but when the world looks at most Christians, do they see something that looks, well, happy? Or do most Christians look like negative Nancy? I'm here to tell you that I wouldn't want the Christianity that most church members I meet have. Happiness can be a bridge to the gospel because happiness can only be found in Jesus. And so when we meet someone who is struggling in sin, when we meet someone who is down in the depths of despair, we are able to look at them and say, that thing you're desiring in porn and that thing you're searching for in social media and that thing that you're craving in the drugs you're consuming and the thing that you're searching for in the relationship after relationship after relationship that you find yourself in, that that thing that you're hoping for in the entertainment of game after game and movie after movie and show after show. Friend, that thing you're looking for, it's happiness, and I know where you can find it. Can I tell you about Jesus? That's what we're called to do. Blessed, happy are those who, wait, who mourn? Hold on, I, I thought you said that <laughs> happy are the sad? What? Can I just tell you that the Christian embraces mourning as an avenue to comfort and to happiness. Whereas the world wants to avoid mourning at all costs. But, but here's what Jesus has to say about that in Luke chapter 6. He says, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So he says in chapter 5 of Matthew, happy are those who mourn. And then he looks at others and he says, watch out. You who's laughing now because one day you're going to be mourning. It's a, well, it's a rhetorical paradox here because he's talking about two different audiences. Jesus is clearly delineating and defining happiness as a delight that can only be found in Christ. And not only that, he's defining mourning as well. He's introducing a new way of life. And Jesus is condemning the world's definition of happiness. And he's lifting up God's approach to a happy way of life. He says, here's how you find it. You want the key to happiness? Do you want it? Does anybody want to be happy? Raise a hand. I want to be happy. Here's how you do it. Mourn. 
See, in the Greek language, there are nine different verbs for grief. They have nine different words. But this word mourn, Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 5, this word, it's the strongest of the nine. Now, the fact that there are nine different Bible words for grief ought to let us know that there's going to be grief in the life of the Christian. It's good grief. Paradox. But this is the strongest one. Jesus says, this is, this is, the, this is the absolute strongest word I can use for grief here. Of those nine, I, I kind of went, went through them as best I could and, and condensed them into three types of sorrow. There's really three types of sorrow. And, and when Jesus says, happy are those who are sad, happy are those who mourn, we need to understand what he's talking about. Because I've mourned the loss of something before, and I was not happy as a result. So let's talk about that. There's one type of sorrow that's it's a general sadness. It's a general sadness. Like in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's like, I know about your tears. It's the tears that he's crying over. He really wants to see Paul, and he really misses Paul. It's, it's a general sadness. It's a general sorrow. It's like when the sorrows of life rush upon us and our body responds with, with tears. One of my favorite commentators on Scripture says that the tears are a gift from God because all the pain that we experience in life would be detrimental and lethal to our emotional system if we couldn't open up the valve of tears and release it. There are some of you that are not happy because you're, you're living in a continual state of general sadness and that's not the key. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Here's the other one. It's a type of sadness that wants to get something. It wants to get something. Maybe it's, I'm sad because I want to, there, there's something that I want. I want to get something that I want. Like in 1 Kings 21, there's this king by the name of Ahab, and he really wants a vineyard that's owned, owned by a man named Naboth. And so he goes to him and he says, Naboth, I'd like to buy your vineyard. And Naboth says, nope, can't do it. This is a family vineyard. And, and God says, I can't. And so here's what the Bible says Ahab does. He laid down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. Like, can you just hear this king pouting like a, like a toddler? This, this get something sadness, it's a sinful morning because it's focused on what it wants that it didn't get. Maybe it's a get something sadness about you want to get back something that you wasted. Like in 2 Samuel 18, King David's son Absalom has gone out to destroy his father. He wants to kill his dad. He wants to take over Israel. He hates God. He, he hates everything. And the armies of King David go out to meet the, the recruits of Absalom. And in the battle, Absalom dies. And this is a good thing for Israel. In fact, it was a predicted thing um, in... Uh, I'm trying to remember, maybe 2 Samuel. The prophet had predicted David was going to pay for his sin with Bathsheba like four times. This was predicted. Like, Absalom's going to die. We know that's coming. 
But when David gets the news that Absalom has died, he goes into this deep state of just mourning. Oh, my son. And then he makes this statement. I wish I would have died instead of you. And one of David's men comes to him and he says, King, you need to get your act together. Because that's not, that's not of God what you're saying. David's sorrow was really over. He wanted to get something back that he had lost. Here's what it was. He was a bad dad. And his sorrow over, I wish, I wish, oh, I wish that I could get that back. It's not a godly sorrow. It's a get something sorrow. And some of you are unhappy. You want to know why? Because you're mourning like that. I want, I, I wish, oh, and, and God is not with you in that. But here's the third one. It's a godly sorrow. Let me just read this to you in 2 Corinthians. It's too good to just summarize. Here's, here's what 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. And then Paul says this, therefore, we are comforted. Godly sorrow, godly mourning produces comfort. There's only one kind of sorrow that brings life and comfort and repentance. It's godly sorrow. It's the type of sorrow Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It's not sorrow because you're lonely. It's not sorrow because you're disappointed. It's not even because somebody died. That's, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not sorrow because you really want to get something or because you're sad you really missed out on doing something. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not saying that we're bemoaning human circumstances. And, and let me just say that the first kind of sorrow, the, the general sorrow, that's not a sinful thing. In, in John chapter 11, even Jesus wept over the loss of his friend. E even Jesus wept. Look up here. Look up here. E e even, even Jesus wept. That, that general sorrow, it's not a, a, a sinful kind, but this word mourn has to do with godly sorrow over sin. It's a, it's a deep inner agony over over the effects of sin in my life. There's another Greek word that has to do with shouting or, or, or crying or wailing. But this, this word, it's a deep inner pain. Like the pain that David expresses in Psalm 32 when he confesses his sin and he gets forgiveness. And if you read that chapter, once he gets the confession out and he gets right with God, there's a word in Psalm 32. You'll never guess. Blessed. Happy. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse number 3, step one is realizing you're spiritually bankrupt. Then building on that, the re that realization drives you to a mourning over your sin. Jesus is saying, this is sorrow because you're a sinner. That's the issue. 
There's no happiness in the sorrow of the world. It can't be comforted. But here Jesus uses this emphatic pronoun, autoi, which means blessed are they who continue to mourn. They're mourning. They're mourning. They keep mourning. They're going back to mourning. It's not anything but just a deep-rooted hatred of sin and a repentance of it. It's only the mourners who know God's comfort. And it's only those who mourn for sin who know what it is to have their tears dried by the hand of a comforter. I just want to tell you God is a comforter. He's in the comfort business. Psalm 30 verse 5. Psalm 50 15. Isaiah 55 6. Micah chapter 7. All over the Old Testament, God is a comforter. And then Jesus says, guess what the Holy Spirit is? A comforter. God sent his Holy Spirit to be a comforter. So happiness comes to the sad people, not because they're sad, but because of their sorrow, their mourning, their repentance of sin. Because repentance is a bridge to God's comfort. Okay, Pastor John, how can I know if I'm truly mourning over sin? You've said a lot of things tonight. You keep telling me I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. What do I do about it? You want to know? You want to know how to be happy and experience God's comfort? It's simply this. Take a look. Call sin what God calls it. You want to know how to mourn? You want to know how to mourn? Call sin what God calls it. We read that in 2 Corinthians 7. Call it what God, stop, well, that's my Enneagram. That's my personality. This is my background. This is just my, nope, God says sin. And cut the rationalization. Well, here's my excuse. And if you knew my family and if you knew where I came from, then you'd understand why I do this. And, and this is why I act this way. And, and, and let me just tell you about what they did. All rationalization is out. As we confess all of our sin. All of it. Confess it all. Get it all out on the table. Well, I'm only going to confess the safe ones. It's like the things that I know other people won't be too freaked out by. But, but I'm not going to confess the, the deep ones and the dark ones because I don't want anybody to judge me. The only person who has the authority to judge you, his name is Jesus. And he said in his word, confess your sins so that you can be comforted. Get it out of your system. Stop hiding it. Stop rationalizing it. Stop calling it other than what God calls it. It's sin. Get it out of your heart. The only sin that has power in your life is the one that's in the darkness. And once you expose it to the light, it no longer has power over you. And some of you have been living in addiction for so long. You were exposed to that when you were younger and you're still living in it now and you won't talk to anybody about it. I'm here to say that if you've got a youth leader who loves Jesus, they'd love to open up God's word and show you how you can find freedom and find liberty. Stop hiding it in the darkness. Expose it to the light. And once you do, Satan doesn't have any authority there anymore. The Holy Spirit begins to comfort you in that moment. Get it out of your system. And then go correct what may be broken. Because some of you have got the unrepented sin in your heart from what you said to them or about them and what you did to them or with them. And you might need to go to someone in your small group tonight, hug them up and say, I'm so sorry. 
Some of you need to go home on Friday afternoon and when you get out of the church van, you need to walk up to your parents before you grab your luggage or say goodbye to your friends and hug them and say, Mom, Dad, I am so sorry. You want to know how to mourn? You want to know God's comfort? Do you want to be happy? Here it is. Correct what may be broken and then commence a plan for future victory. This is what our small groups are about tonight. It's a, I'm not going to rationalize my sin. I'm not going to hide my sin. I've been the common denominator in every mistake I've ever made. I'm a problem. And I'm bringing my sin. I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk to my youth leader about like, hey, Nobody knows this but me and you, but I just can't keep it a secret anymore. I don't want the enemy to have victory in my heart. I I don't want this. And so I want to be sad about it. I want to be broken about it. I want to hate it because God hates it. And so I'm going to call it sin and I'm going to confess it. And then I'm going to commence a plan for how I'm never going to do that again. The reason why so many Christians are unhappy is because they keep saying, God, I'm sorry, then they go do it again. God, I'm sorry, then they do it again. God, I'm sorry, then they do it again. It's a binge purge, binge purge. You've been through the cycle. You've made the decisions. You've prayed the prayers. You gave the testimony. You cried the tears, but it didn't really take because you were unwilling to make a plan for never going back. And tonight will be a generation that says, Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken, who are wrecked because of sin. And when we get right with God, all of a sudden, in the moment of, God, I did this, and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Help me as I correct this with the people I've wronged. God, I'm not going back there, and I'm getting some help tonight so that I never go back there. I've got people that are going to help me not go back there. And in that moment, God's comfort is rushing upon the Holy Spirit will place his hand on your shoulder and say, son, daughter, I love you. Thank you for getting this right tonight. Every head bowed and every eye closed, no one moving, no one looking, no one fidgeting, no one talking. This is vital tonight. You're sitting here and you've never trusted Jesus as your savior. You've never repented of your sin. The truth of the matter is you're not saved. And so you're on your way to hell, my friend. And I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to spend eternity there. And so I don't wanna scare you into a decision or trick you into praying some magical words. There's nothing you could do to save yourself. But if the Holy Spirit has been knocking on the door of your heart tonight and saying, repent, repent, come to me, get saved, trust me as your savior. If you're not on your way to heaven, if you don't know that God is your savior, if you've been fighting it, but tonight God's been saying, Psst, that's you. Would you just slip up your hand right now? I'm not saved and I need to be. Raise it high. Don't lower it. Hands lifted high. Come on, all the way up, all the way up. Raise it. If you mean it, you won't be scared to raise it because hell doesn't care about your little half half raised hand but but heaven wants to declare the glory of God in this moment as you raise it high and your youth pastors are looking because they're going to ask you let's talk about that lower them because 
Maybe you say, I trusted Jesus as my savior, but here's the thing. I've got this thing in my life and I haven't got it out. But tonight, man, I just, I want God's comfort. I want God's peace. I want the happiness that can only be found in Christ. More than anything, I, I want to be broken over what God is broken about. I want to be, I want to hate what God hates. And it's in my life and I want it out. I want it out. If you've got that thing, you know, that thing that tonight the Holy Spirit's been tapping on your heart about, slip up your hand. That's me. Oh, that's me, Pastor John. That's me. Raise your hand. Raise it high. I did. Lord, this is me. My hand's raised. God, tonight you've been speaking to me. I'm lifting up my hand to identify with this truth. I need your comfort. Father, thank you for these honest, raised hands. Lord, we shy away from repentance so often. Tonight, thank you that this is the next step in your word. Mourning so that we can experience your comfort. So God, help us to get real about this tonight. In Jesus' name.